Welcome. This is Anastasia Glova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Be sure to log on to our website, www.cato.org, for a full archive of our podcast as well as many other audio offerings. November 7th, Election Day. Some see it as a referendum on the Bush administration and others predict just more of the same. I'm sitting down with Director of Government Affairs Brandon Arnold and Director of Budget Studies Stephen Slavinsky, who offers some sobering analysis of what and whom this day may bring to Washington and to America. Brandon, with only 30 truly competitive seats in the House, what's really at stake today? Well, you're right. There are only about 30 seats that are still in the toss-up category or in the competitive category at this point in the House. But right now, the Democrats need to pick up 15 seats to take control of the House of Representatives. So they are within striking range, and this could be an opportunity for them to pick up not only control of the House, but also control of the Senate, where they just need to take over six seats currently held by the Republicans. And where are those most heavily contested seats right now? They're scattered all over the country, oddly enough. There's competitive seats from coast to coast. If you look at some of the states that have a number of very highly competitive seats up for grabs right now, you can look to Connecticut, where about four of the House seats currently held by moderate Republicans could switch over to Democrats. You can look at Pennsylvania, where several Republican moderates are also in danger, as well as a very competitive Senate race, as Senator Rick Santorum is in the fight of his life to hold on to his seat. But really, if you, if you take geography out of the equation... The biggest determinant for whether a seat is competitive or not is whether the incumbent is running. Where we have open seats, to a large extent, we have competitive seats. Let me take this over to Steve for a second. Where do you think economic policy is headed? Do you think the Bush tax cuts are in jeopardy if the Democrats win? I don't actually think the tax cuts are in jeopardy if the Democrats win. I know Republicans are trying to use that as a base motivating or, I guess, a fear among their voters to try to get them to the polls today. But it seems to me that, first of all, Democrats are not likely to have a veto-proof majority in the House. And I do not see under what circumstances Bush would ever sign a bill that actually increases taxes or reverses his tax cuts. And so under those circumstances, it seems to me that the tax cuts are going to remain intact. They don't expire until about 2010. And so it strikes me as unlikely anyway that the taxes would actually go up, even though Democrats might attempt to do something like that. It doesn't seem to me institutionally all that possible. I think there are three things that libertarians and limited government conservatives should keep their eye on under a democratic Congress. The first is where government spending goes. Gridlock, divided government, as I've said numerous times before, tends to keep spending under control. It puts an outer boundary on the impulses of government to grow rather quickly. And so I think that's a good thing that actually is going to get government under control, not because the Democrats are small government guys and people. They're not. It's just that partisanship being what it is, Republicans are going to now fight against big government programs because now they're going to be coming out of the mouths of Democratic leaders as opposed to Republican leaders. So I think that's a good thing. I also think it's very likely, or I should say more likely than before, that reform to the immigration system along the lines of a guest worker program that we've supported here at the Cato Institute and that's actually been proposed by the White House, I think the possibility of that sort of reform actually goes up under a Democratic Congress. The Republican Congress, specifically in the House, the the debate has all been driven by the Tom Tancredos and the supporters like that, the build-a-wall crowd. Those people are not going to have as much power in a Democratic Congress, and I think there's much more interest in reforming immigration along the lines of a guest worker program under a Democratic Congress. The main trouble spot is going to be over free trade. The Democrats that could be taking over the House are not the same sort of Democrats you saw in the 1990s, the Bill Clinton, Robert Rubin, free trade type Democrats. They're folks that actually want to get rid of fast-track promotion trade authority 
authority and things of that sort, which make it very difficult for the president to negotiate trade agreements and very important needed trade agreements like the Doha round on agriculture subsidies and such. And so that's the one thing that really does concern me, even though we might get spending under control under a divided government and we might get a reformed immigration system, we'll still have that potential protectionist impulse in a democratic Congress. And so I think of all the things, that's the one that worries me the most. But I guess in some ways, two out of three isn't bad either. Another important economic point is raising the minimum wage. Now, Brandon, do you think if the Democrats regain a majority, that's going to become a central issue? I don't think there's any question that they're going to make an attempt to raise the minimum wage if they take over the House or the Senate. In fact, current minority leader Nancy Pelosi is pretty much already committed to increasing the minimum wage, and her fellow Bay Area Democrat, George Miller, would take over the House Education and Workforce Committee if the Democrats can take over the House, and he is a huge proponent of raising the minimum wage. So I think we can be pretty confident that if Democrats take over the House, and in fact it looks like they will, that we will get some sort of minimum wage increase coming out of the House. The question will be, what's going to happen in the Senate? But I think there is an appetite over there in the Senate especially with probably having a very narrow majority, either a very narrow Republican majority or a very narrow Democratic majority, I'm hedging my bets there, that I think there will be the willpower on behalf of that body to pass a minimum wage as well. So then, of course, the question turns to the White House. Can they make it a minimum wage package as a standalone bill? Will the president sign a standalone minimum wage increase? Or will they have to throw in a few sweeteners? Something like some populist-type tax relief, maybe a child tax credit, AMT relief, something along those lines to get it signed on the president's desk. Now, Steve, back to you. Do you think it'll be business as usual if the Republicans hold on to control of Congress? If Republicans do hold on to Congress, it's probably going to be by very small margins and really unlikely that current House leadership will remain intact. I can't imagine Denny Hastert being reelected as Speaker under a circumstance like that, nor can I imagine a lot of the current Republican leaders hanging on to their jobs either. What that means is, although there might be some interest in continuing business as usual, it's going to be very unlikely that they could. I think you're going to see a lot more interest among backbenchers, a lot more aggressive folks like Mike Pence of Indiana, Jeff Flake of Arizona, Jeb Henschling of Texas. In fact, Pence and Henschling are probably the most likely folks to want to pursue some kind of leadership positions. These are folks that were leading the charge against earmarks, in favor of budget reform, for spending cuts. These are the guys that I think a lot of Republicans are going to turn to if they still hold on to Congress, because they'll realize that there was such discontent among Republican voters that they almost lost the majority as a result of that. And so while there may be some general sense that they can continue doing things as they normally have, I think deep down they're going to realize that they can't. And I think the leadership election is going to be a lot more interesting if Republicans do hold on to Congress, because I think you'll see, in some respects, some new cast of characters on the leadership side. And that's actually a good thing, in my opinion. Just to put this in perspective, are we looking at a watershed election here? I don't think so, because all 435 congressional seats are up for re-election. And in the best case scenario, for Democrats anyway, only about 55, 52 of them perhaps are potential gains for them. This leaves close to 90% of all House seats still held by incumbents. So effectively, what we're seeing is not really a watershed election per se. Re-election rates for incumbents are still very high. And I think in some ways people need to put that into perspective or put this election into perspective. We're still going to have close to 90% re-election rates. We're still going to have, in many respects, business as usual in Washington, no matter who maintains control. 
Brandon? I would agree with Steve. I, I think, is this a watershed election? That depends on how we define watershed in this modern era of politics, with gerrymandering as it is, and with states so divided along partisan lines. We don't see the same kind of turnover that we might have in the past. So is this a watershed election? Maybe. It's pretty rare these days that we see both the House and the Senate, control of both the House and the Senate, up for grabs. And for that, it may end up being, in the modern definition of the word, a watershed election. Regardless of 90% re-election rates, what matters here is the majority, and the majority might change. So that might change politics for the last six years, won't it? I'm still not so sure of that, because again, I think we need to put this in context. Just because the House or the Senate might change control doesn't mean that the electoral system in the United States politically is really all that more competitive. We're just dealing with these marginal seats that may shift one way or the other. The truth is, if you're an incumbent politician in the U.S., chances are you're going to get reelected. You have most of the advantages at your disposal, not just fundraising, but specifically the ability to gerrymander districts and things of this sort. And as a result, you're very likely to be reelected. So even though there may be a shift in 30 to 55 seats or so, and that may change control of Congress and who can set the agenda in the House, for instance, through committees and such, it doesn't really mean, and I don't think it means, that uh, there's going to be much change in political competitiveness in the U.S. Brandon, do you have anything to say to that? Well, sure. I think the other point that maybe needs to be made here is the fact that even if Democrats take over the House and the Senate, especially if we look at the House, a lot of the seats that they would be picking up are normally slightly conservative to moderate seats. The Democrats that are coming into these seats are not going to be Nancy Pelosi clones. They're not going to come here with a San Francisco agenda. They're going to come here with a Southern moderate background or a Midwestern moderate background, and they're going to need to cater to their constituency because they know they've got an election two years down the road. They can't be out there voting to repeal the tax cuts across the board or anything radical like that. So groups like the moderate Blue Dog Coalition, the Democratic Party, are going to have a lot more influence, perhaps even more so than the Progressive Caucus and the Nancy Pelosi's of the world would like. If you enjoyed this program, consider subscribing to Cato Audio, a dynamic 60-minute monthly recording that brings you inside the Cato Institute for highlights from exceptional one-of-a-kind lectures and events on key issues of the day presented by nationally known scholars, authors, and political leaders. Cato Audio is available on our website as well as on iTunes and audible.com.